If you haven't already, let me invite you to open your Bibles to that passage our friend Tara just read, 2 Samuel chapter 8. We'll be looking at the whole chapter. How's everyone doing this morning? It's good to be together. Good to have families back that have been sick, and it's, it's fun to see everyone's faces. Fun to have families join us. Welcome for the baby child dedication. Uh, it's so, such a privilege to be a part of a church where there's new life, and uh, babies' voices. And I'd, I never thought of it as a distraction. I thought of it as a beautiful evidence of the grace of God in our church, that we have kids and we have families. And it's a beautiful thing. Parenting is a beautiful struggle, isn't it? Uh, Jim Gaffigan said once, I don't know what's more exhausting about parenting, the getting up early or acting like you know what you're doing. (laughs) I heard Jerry Seinfeld say once, uh, having a two-year-old is like having a blender, but you don't have the top on the blender. (laughs) It's awesome. And whether you have kids or not, whether you have a spouse or not, uh, we want to be a community of grace. We want to be a community that accepts and loves one another in whatever life stage the Lord might have us in. And uh, we want to encourage one another in whatever calling the Lord has given us. So we don't think that you're more complete as a family because you have kids. Like you're not incomplete if you're single. You're not incomplete if you're together and you don't have kids. Whatever calling the Lord has given you, we want to encourage you and help you fulfill the calling that God has given you. Amen? That's the kind of church that we want to be. I have a couple announcements before we get into the text. One is um, we have... Connect cards are an online connect card. There's a QR code right there up on the screen. I feel like we're cutting edge, technically a knowledge advanced because we have that. Pretty sweet. If you're a guest and you'd like to learn more, you'd like to sign up uh, for our church email that, that gets sent out, we'd love to connect with you. I'd love to get a chance to pray with you and, and connect with you personally. Secondly, uh, there, there is a Lighthouse uh, Northwest sign-up that's in the back. Uh, Sarah Tuttle, the executive director of Lighthouse, was here last week talking about uh, kind of exciting development in the life of Lighthouse Northwest, where they're going to be kind of going public with a lot of ministries that they are offering to women coming out of uh, abuse. And it's going to be hosted right here on Tuesday nights. So if you didn't get a chance to catch that announcement, it was last week, right before I preached. It was like 10 minutes. I'd encourage you to listen to it. If you, if you didn't, you'd like to learn more. If you'd like to sign up to help in any way, there's opportunities to help with childcare, uh, with Preparing a food, preparing a food, preparing food that comes uh, help us set up and tear down. Um, we, we think it's a great honor and privilege to partner with this ministry. Uh, they've blessed us in so many ways, and, and it's a joy to, to be together in this. Thirdly, all church retreat. Okay, that's coming up. We're going to be camping over Labor Day weekend. If you would like to come with us, you're welcome to come, and you don't want to come the whole time. It's like, I don't know if I want to be around those people for four days in a row. All right, I just want to dabble my foot in the water. You can come with one, one day, Saturday, Sunday. You can come two days. It's just like 45 minutes south of here in Graham, right on Lake Tanwax. And we have a, a great time together. There's, there's no agenda other than to have fun and to be together. There is going to be a meal Saturday night, and there is a sign-up sent out. So look for it in the email that's sent out um, to help with sign-up. I think it's going to be, as Pam said, a taco bar. So we love tacos, and those are great to do. So Saturday night, if you'd like to come just for the meal, um, Peter and Nathan bring out their boat for tubing and water skiing and uh, not giving people concussions, right? <laughs> yes. So it's, it's a fun time. 
Uh, Peter wanted me to announce that uh, he asked if you have kids' life jackets, please bring those for uh, kids on the boat. Okay, fourthly, we have a membership class coming up September 18th. If you'd like to learn more about the church, you'd like to become a member, it's just going to be right after the gathering on September 18th. We'll have lunch together, and uh, we'll get a chance to talk, ask questions about the church. And uh, I think I have one more announcement, and that is Dave Davies, the pastor at Jesus Christ Salt and Light, he heard this band. I don't know if you guys are familiar with traditional Celtic music. Anyone a fan? Rick? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Musicians in the back, I see you guys. Uh, he has uh, essentially planned, Jesus Christ Salt and Light has planned this free concert in the park down at the Des Moines Beach Park, September 9th. It's a Friday night from 6 to 7.30. And he's asked the other churches to kind of come alongside them to put on this event together. So myself and uh, Johnny P, John Poinkowski, are going to be grilling the hot dogs. We'll be praying the food. But if you'd like to help uh, with any other part of the event, or you just want to come, I would encourage you to come. It'll be a fun time. Uh, expose your kids to some different music that you probably won't hear on the radio. Uh, I don't think traditional Celtic music is on the radio normally. Dad? Not here. Yeah, not here. So it'll be a good time. 6 to 7.30, there's going to be free food. Um, September 9th, 6 to 7.30. And lastly, I wanted to thank Nick and Ben for, uh, Nick and Ben, Nick and Peter, for setting up the Nerf War yesterday. We had the men's breakfast in Nerf War. We've got some pictures to show. It was a fun time. Group of hooligans there. And uh, the second picture, I think Peter had the idea of everyone point at Nick. <laughs> we had a fun time. So we do men's breakfast. Uh, Nick has, Nick, thank you for your leadership in that and taking initiative and organizing that. Third Saturday of the month, we do a men's breakfast and it looks different every week. One time we had all the kids with us, and I cooked for two hours. It was super fun. Um, yeah, last time we did a Nerf War. There's different ideas, and uh, Nick is always doing a great job of, of organizing those and coming up with different ideas. So thank you, Nick, for your leadership in that. And uh, if anyone has any other questions about the church or announcements, please talk to me, because I feel like that's everything, right? Pam, Peter? Okay. Sweet. Let's talk about the Bible, and let's look at the Bible, shall we? Enough of my words. Let's look at God's words. 2 Samuel chapter 8. 2 Samuel chapter 8 comes right after the kind of focal point in the whole storyline of Samuel. Storyline of Samuel, the people don't have a king. They want to be like the other nations. They say, give us a king. Samuel says, you guys really don't want a king. He's going to take the best of your crops, the best of your servants, you're going to become his slaves. And they say, no, we want to be like the other nations. Give us a king, Samuel. So they the first appoint this guy named Saul. Saul seems like he's going to be the right guy. He's tall. He's handsome. He's the head above everyone else. This is the guy. Then he's not the guy. He makes some big mistakes. He's prideful. He falls. And, and God says, I'm going to appoint a man who's after my own heart. I'm, I'm looking for a guy who's after my own heart. And, and he tells Samuel, don't look at how other people look. Uh, the Lord looks at the heart. And it's ended up being the, the youngest of Jesse's sons, this shepherd boy named David. He becomes king. And God gives to David this promise in 2 Samuel 7 that from your lineage is going to come a king who's going to set up a forever kingdom, an eternal kingdom. It starts because David says, hey, I, we, we've been journeying this, these many years as a nation, going through the wilderness. God has dwelled in a tabernacle, a tent. I want to build him a house. He says, God, I want to build you a house. And God says, you want to build me a house? I'm going to build you a house. <laughs> I'm going to build you a lineage. And from your lineage, it's going to be this eternal kingdom. And, and, and your son, from your lineage, he's going to build me a temple, but you're not. 
So then chapter eight, we see how David is going to go about financing this temple. He's going to see victories of David. It's in other words, we're seeing evidence of God setting up David's kingdom. He's, he's having victory on all sides. It's a key verse in this chapter. The Lord granted, the Lord was with David and granted him victory on all sides. Verse six, the second sentence of verse six, and the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. And, and most of this chapter is kind of summarizing David's victories over the course of years. Was, so there's a couple sentences per kind of key nation, and then, and then the, the narrator will move on to the next nation that David conquers, and there's victories and there's consequences. It got me thinking, how would someone summarize your last year in a sentence or a couple of years? <laughs> It'd be challenging, wouldn't it? How would you summarize a victory, a battle? How would you summarize the men's breakfast yesterday? Men ate, men nerfed, right? <laughs> Whatever team Chris Englehart was on, the Lord granted victory on every side, right? <laughs> he was the secret weapon. I was talking with Peter this morning. I don't think he lost. Yeah. Second Samuel 8 summarizes, it recaps the many victories, and we see the Philistines to the west, Moab to the east, Zobah and Aram to the north. There's tribute paid by Hamath and Edom to the east. And over each neighboring enemy, there's a victory, and then there's consequences, what, what David does to these enemies. So we see right out in verse 1, David defeats the Philistines and subdues them. And David took Metheg out of the hand of the Philistines. And studying that verse this week, no one really knows what that means. Meth, Metheg Rough translation would be bridle of the cubit, <laughs> which makes it even more unclear, right? And it seems like this could be a figure of speech, figurative phrase, essentially meaning that David took the reins of leadership from the Philistines. And what we know after this verse is the Philistine nation really doesn't ever become a problem for the Israelites again. Like he subdues them and they're kind of, they gone, as they say. They're done. David then defeats Moab and they become his servants and they bring tribute. David then defeats Zobah. Huge defeat. He hamstrings the horses. And they were thinking, oh, those four horses. <laughs> what does that even mean? It essentially means they can't be used for military anymore. But they could be used for farm horses. It's not like they're, you know, garbage horses now. They can still be used. Just not in a military way. David takes down Damascus. The Syrians become his servants. The Syrians come to help. And he strikes down 20,000 20, soldiers, it says. And then there's that summary verse, the second sentence of verse six, and the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. So there's military spoils. There's, they're stored up for the building of the temple. It says lots of bronze. There's shields of gold. There's valuable materials for the building of the temple. News of David's victory is spreading. It hears that David, this guy, this king, king of Hamath, hears that David defeats the whole army of Hadadezer and he sends his son to bless him. <laughs> he wises up and thinks, oh, I'm not going to fight this guy. I'm going to get on his good side. I'm going to bring him some tribute. Here you go. I'm going to bless you. And we're told that all the silver and gold, David doesn't just say, man, this is awesome. I'm going I'm to build the coolest palace for myself. He says he dedicates it to the Lord. It dedicates from the spoil all the nations that have been subdued. And we list those nations again, Edom, Moab, Ammonites, Philistines, Amalek, and the spoil from King of Zobah. And David is continually making a name for himself after striking down 18,000 Edomites. This phrase is repeated again, showing the importance of it. Second Samuel 8, 14. 
Then he put garrisons in Edom. Throughout all Edom, he put garrisons. And all the Edomites became David's servants. And the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. Right, in our modern English, we have like, we have emojis now, which are kind of just, we use those in text to emphasize things. But we have exclamation points. We have bold, we have underline. We can make things important. In ancient writing, they would repeat things to make it important. So it's like, it's really important David put garrisons in Edom. They repeat it twice. It's really important that David, that the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. That that phrase is repeated. This is, David's just winning because the Lord is with him and he's granting him the victories. And then we're told at the end of the chapter there that, that officials are listed out. Joab, Jehoshaphat, Zadok, Benaiah, David's sons, they are listed as priests or some translations say chief officials. They might have been uh, kind of palace consultants to the priesthood. Seems like David wanted to have good relationship between the royal family and the priestly family. And that's kind of the end of the chapter, right? So you're reading your Bible and you come across 2 Samuel 8 and you go, well, what was the point of this? What would you say? Why does this matter? What's the point of studying 2 Samuel 8? Is this just kind of boring information about a dead king and nations that are irrelevant? <laughs> I mean, show me where Edom is on the map. Show me where the Ammonites are on the map. They're gone. Why does it matter? How many of you have heard a sermon on 2 Samuel 8? I haven't. I went to my Logos, my Bible software, and I thought, oh, what kind of pastor has preached on 2 Samuel 8? Nothing. <laughs> Couldn't copy and paste and insert it into the sermon. <laughs> what would you do if you were studying the Bible and reading through Samuel and came to this chapter? You'd say, cool. God granted David victory wherever he went. That's repeated twice. That seems important. Now, let me get back to my TV shows and my video games and things that I really care about. <laughs> you know. I grew up in the church, and I remember after a certain point, the Bible was boring to me. I'd heard the stories. I knew them. Grew up in Sunday school, and teachers would ask me. You know, what? I knew all the answers. Studied the Bible. I knew it. I thought I knew what it was about. It was a book about rules. All the rules that God had for us, he put them in this book, and this is what the Bible is. All these stories. Once you know them, you know them. You just have to apply them. Or it's a book of characters. It's showing me who I should be like and who I shouldn't be like. Like, be like this guy. Be like Noah when he's having faith. There's no rain. Everyone's kind of making fun of him. But don't be like Noah afterwards when he's in the tent and he's drunk. And don't do that. Be like Moses when he has his faith. But don't be like Moses when he gets angry and he disobeys God and he gets banned from the promised land. Reading the Bible this way, I became frustrated. I became more and more frustrated in, because I would see all the ways I wasn't doing the things that I knew I should be doing. You guys with me? All the ways I wasn't like the great men and women of faith. It showed me all the ways I wasn't living right. Got to a point where I just stopped. Anyone been here? I'm just not going to read the Bible because every time I read it, I get convicted. And I don't want to get convicted, so I just won't read it. That's the kind of thought process we can have, right? I remember the first time I heard someone say, the Bible is not primarily a book of rules or a book of heroes. The Bible is primarily a story of God's love rescuing his people. I didn't believe it at first. <laughs> Are you reading the same Bible I have? I'm reading? I mean, 2 Samuel 8. I remember stepping into a church where the sermons weren't primarily about us and all the things that we should be doing. 
it, it just felt like a to-do list sometimes. Here are three things you get to do this week. I'm like, I don't need three more things. I've got so much to do this week. I haven't done the stuff I was supposed to do last week. <laughs> things I know I should be doing already, loving my wife, being slow to anger, quick to listen, slow to speak. <laughs> I'm still working on that stuff. Don't give me three more things. I remember the time I stepped into a church where the sermons were about Jesus. They weren't about us, what we should be doing. They were about what God has already done, what Jesus has done. And that, that changed me. It changed the way I wanted to preach and, and lead. Yes, the Bible does have some rules in it. You know, the Bible shows you how life works best in wisdom. Yes, the Bible does have characters in it, but so many of them are not heroes. Like, you don't want to be like those guys. They have major character flaws. Like David. We're going to read about it in a couple chapters. David, this man after God's own heart, is on his palace. He sees a woman bathing. He says, I, I want that woman. He's already got wives. And it's the wife of, of a guy's army, like a commander, Uriah. Guys fought for him hard. He's, and he, he wants her, he sleeps with her, gets her pregnant. It's like, oh, shoot. Someone's going to know it. It's not Uriah because he's not home. He's, he's fighting in a battle. Like he's off fighting. And I'm sleeping with his wife at home. So I'll, I'll bring Uriah home. So then they won't know it's me. I mean, maybe he grows up and then he looks like me. And I was like, oh, shoot, what do I do then? But they won't know at first. But Uriah is such, so faithful to his men, he doesn't, doesn't even go home to be with his wife. So then David orchestrates a plan that says, hey, you guys go out and, and fight, push. And then everyone draws back except Uriah. Oh man, he happens to die. That's horrible. That's his plan. Lying, adultering, murderer, says be like David. No. Everyone might have a different sense of morality, right? But we could agree, lying, adultery, and murder, <laughs> that's, that's, that's not good. The Bible does have rules, it does have key characters, but the Bible is primarily a story of God's love, moving to rescue and redeem his people in the personal work of Jesus. The work of, of Jesus sent to win back his people, his lost treasure, that, that did something to me. I think that does something to us. I remember hearing the pastor preach at this church and every week, I mean, this was the church, the Hallows Church. I was apprenticing here before being sent out to start the Mountain Church. And I thought, I know the gospel. I mean, I've been assessed. I've been approved. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring the gospel to Des Moines. And I'm hearing Andrew preach. And I'm thinking, I don't know the gospel like this guy does. The gospel is huge. Jesus is in every story. And he was bringing me Jesus in every story. And my heart was being transformed as he was preaching because I was seeing the beauty and the love of Jesus. It wasn't about what I, what I must do, but what he has done. And it did something to me. Man, I'm getting worked up. Sorry, guys. <laughs> and uh, Andrew was influenced by this guy named Timothy Keller. I started reading his books, his sermons, and falling in love with Jesus in a new way, showing me the gospel in a new way. And uh, we bought this children's book, um, the Jesus Storybook Bible, but written by Sally Lloyd-Jones, who was influenced and in, in, in his church. Uh, and, and I was, remember reading these stories that I, I thought I knew. 
and every story is connected to Jesus. And I just I remember reading these stories of Addison, and I was just crying. Like I don't I don't know these stories like like I thought I did. And it, it right I, it's not in my manuscript. Get emotional here. <laughs> in parentheses, it does something to me. The story of God's love for you, it does something to you more so than rules. I'm changed more. I'm convinced more that the most transformative power in the universe is not rules. It's love and grace. And the more we see the love and grace of Jesus in the text, in the stories, the more that we are changed, changed, transformed from the inside out. And uh, I feel like I should just end the sermon there. When you read the Bible as a book of rules, irrelevant battle details, it doesn't move you. When, when you read the Bible as a book of rules, you, you can, it can promote a sense of self-righteousness. You feel good because you're doing all the right things. Or it can add this burden that crushes you. Rules don't change you. I've seen guilt and fear and shame can be transformative powers. Those work. That's kind of primarily the toolbox that the world has. You think about how they try to motivate you. Advertisements, they appeal to FOMO. If you're missing out, you got to be really cool to have this thing. Remember when the, the vaccine mandates were coming out? Whatever side you landed on, it was motivated with guilt and fear. Right? How could you not be vaccinated and call yourself a good person? And that's shame. How could you put something like this in your body? How could you do that, right? Rules don't change you. Grace changes you. Kindness leads to repentance. And if the Bible is one big unified story that points to Jesus, I think one of the best ways that we can read 2 Samuel 8 is read it in a way that points us to Jesus. Amen? Not, okay, let's apply this text to our life. We could say, all right, with God on our side, we can win any battle. Amen? He's going to give me wealth, health, status. <laughs> that sounds good. That's why I want to read the Bible. Maybe more ridiculously, when I conquer my enemies, I'll have them lay down next to a measuring stick and to a rope, and I'll have mercy on every third one. As parents are thinking, okay, how do I apply this? Maybe I have mercy on every two times I'm supposed to discipline them, then I would have mercy, right? With God on our side, we need to take out our enemies by military force and violence. I think 2 Samuel 8 is a story of how we are longing for this, this kingdom that's portrayed here. And 2 Samuel 8 is a foreshadow of what's to come. Look at 2 Samuel 8, 15 with me. So David reigned over all Israel, and David administered justice and equity to all his people. Justice and equity. He's got victory from his enemies and justice and equity to all his people. You know what equity means? Freedom from bias or favoritism. The quality of being fair and impartial. So it's this kingdom where everyone is treated justly and fairly. Don't we long for that? Judgment of rights and punishment is pure and true. No corruption. Do we long for that? The world that is has historically been marked by a world that's not just, not marked by equity. 
Historically, those in power, those with money, those with status, oppress and abuse those without. They use their positions for personal gain at the expense of others. The system of the world could be characterized as everyone thinking, what can you do for me? Right? What's, what's in it for me? What's the benefit for me? How will this benefit me? So the rich oppress the poor, the powerful take advantage of the weak. And we long from the freedom. We long for this kind of freedom from these wrongs and evils. And God cares about how people are treated. God cares how the poor and the weak are treated. God cares about how the orphan and the widow are cared for. He identifies with them. I think the more that you see the king of kings, the richest man ever, I mean, just owns everything, forever. He didn't step onto the scene. Jesus doesn't come onto the scene and say, I'm here, where's my palace? Give it to me. Bow to me or I'm going I'm to come in with military force and just smite all you fools. Just say a word. You're gone. The king of the world, the perfect righteous one, the kingdom where justice would roll down like, like waters, flow like mighty streams. This king of kings, this Lord of lords came down to serve. He says, I didn't come to be served. I came to serve and give my life as a ransom for many. He set up this kingdom not by arriving in military force and might, but saying, here I am. I'm going to die for my enemies. I'm going to serve those who other people don't want to serve. I'm going to pursue those in society who are cast off and outcast. He wasn't born in a palace. He was born in a feeding trough. He didn't come to be served. He came as a humble servant. And this kind of, this kind of king is upside down subversive. You don't see this kind of guy in the tabloids. He's not number one trending on Twitter or Instagram. Really rich man gave up everything to become a nobody and serve. It's upside down. The one who deserved the most honor and glory gave himself up for murderers, adulterers, and liars like you and me. The gift of new life and this forgiveness and this joy that he offers, it's for everybody. You don't earn it. You don't get into a line and then prove yourself to him. It's a gift of sheer grace that he offers to everyone. God shows no partiality. And the more that we come to believe this, Cole and Hannah just gave me a book called Deeper by Dane Orland. I just read chapter, chapter one. The premise is growth in the Christian life is about deepening, getting deeper into what you already know. Becoming who you already have become more. Love it so far. Thank you guys. But when you begin to believe that Jesus has done this for you, he loves you, he's committed to you. He endured hell so that you could flourish. He was separated from God so that you could be joined with God. He became sin so that you might be freed from it. If you come to believe that this love is not dependent upon what you've done, but it's a gift of sheer grace, you also will not show partiality. You also will be marked by a person who is, doesn't have a sense of superiority, like I'm better than these guys, which creates this favoritism and pride. Where we begin to embody the kingdom of Jesus, the kingdom of righteousness and equity, this kingdom that is foreshadowed in 2 Samuel 8, that Jesus has come to establish when we operate and live like this, like he's already 
Like the kingdom that he's said is coming is already here when we live like that. So someone drives into the parking lot and they've got a red Ferrari. I was looking up, what's the most expensive Lamborghini? Sold for 4.5 million. Wow, can you believe that? This new Lamborghini called the Veneno Roadster. Anyways, it looked pretty sweet. Original price was 4.5 million. Most expensive car Lamborghini has ever sold. Right, they pull into the parking lot, in Des Moines, of all places. To our church, wow. <laughs> what a gift this must be. Who must be in this car? And then here comes this frumpy, dumpy Ford Taurus. <laughs> Barely hanging on to its life. How do we treat the two? So, oh, a man who drives a Ferrari. A woman who drives a Ferrari. We have to know them. I wonder what their tie check would be. Whoa, what we could do this building, wow. Think about what we could have, the TVs that we could get, the sound system. We could have smoke and lights. Wow. <laughs> Amazing. We don't say to the driver of the Ferrari, here, here's the, we just brewed a fresh cup of coffee just for you. Oh, you want a corner piece? We'll save it just for you. Katie makes us awesome treats, have the best, best slice. Oh, you want the center piece? We'll give you the very center. And this Ford Taurus guy, comes in, you say, oh, hey, you can sit over there. Actually, the last seat is behind this pillar. So this is the worst seat, <laughs> right next to my mom. You can't, you can't see, you just have to listen. You can take that one. We don't make distinctions among ourselves because Jesus didn't make distinctions among us, amen? We treat everyone with kindness and grace because that's how Jesus has treated us. Jesus became poor in the world so that others would be rich in faith and give their lives to bless others, to be heirs of the kingdom. Therefore, those in the kingdom, those who are of the kingdom, use their wealth, use their status, use the calling that they have been given, the position that they've been given, to build others up in love. That's what we want to be about. That's how we build this kingdom, this culture of justice and equity. Amen? So David reigned over all Israel, and David administered justice and equity to all his people. This is the kind of kingdom that David had, this flawed, lying, adulterous, murdering, broken man. We have a kingdom that we can look forward to, amen? Jesus reigns over his church, his kingdom. He has, and he will administer justice and equity. He will right every wrong. And in response to what Jesus has done, we want to align our heart with his. The prophet Isaiah said, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given. Of the increase of his kingdom and peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. Jesus has come, he's inaugurated the kingdom, and we have the opportunity and the privilege to be witnesses and ambassadors of that kingdom until it's fully and finally realized when he comes again. So God, would you give us grace to be these kinds of people in our church, in our community, in our city that treat others fairly with equity that are marked by grace and not by prejudice and pride. Amen. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for coming. Thank you for your work on the cross. Thank you that the salvation that you offer to us is, is sheer grace alone. That we don't deserve it, we can't earn it. 
I pray that our church would be about this, this grace of God. It's different. You hear sermons that are preaching grace, it's, they're different. They move me. And I, I pray that, that sermons here would be preached from a place of grace and love that would move others. It wouldn't, wouldn't cave or bend to the predominant factors that we might experience in the world to try to motivate us, to change our hearts, like fear and guilt and shame, but it would be love and grace that would empower us, help us to be like this, Father. Thank you, Jesus, that you have come to establish a forever kingdom, a kingdom that, that one day, when it's fully and finally realized, when you come again, there will be no tears, no sickness, no death, no suffering, that all God's people together Every tribe, nation, and tongue will worship and celebrate and enjoy being with you, Jesus, and being together. Pray that in, in joy and gratitude for what you've done for us, that we would respond, that we would offer our lives as living sacrifices, that we would give thanks, Jesus, to you, and we would grow in giving thanks, living our lives out of, in a way that seeks to reflect and display and share the grace and goodness that you have shown us in the gospel. Thank you, Jesus. Would you please continue to give us grace as a church to descend into humility and to deepen in our understanding of the gospel and our understanding of grace? Would you help us to be gripped more by it, that it would change us? Help our kids to see it in, in the way that we operate as adults, as the way that we relate to one another. Father, would you continue to bring those that, that want to help would you continue to bring those that want to come in to ex receive grace, those who are broken and battered, that we can show that there is a different way in Jesus? Would you help us? We love you. We thank you. In your, in your name we pray. Amen.